Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolitsich of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. I think that we expected undergraduate education as an institution to do a lot of things for our country. So in addition to providing this broadly educated workforce, which is what it was designed to do, we expected it to provide intellectual fulfillment. And so everyone would go to college and the the message was major in whatever you want, you know, you'll get a job, don't worry, because you've got that sheepskin, you've got that college degree. You know, so people would major in the humanities, economics or other useless crap, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Economics <laughs> is is great at at teaching you how to sound smart to other middle managers in corporate America. Um, it's useful. <laughs> it's very useful. So people would major in in stuff that wouldn't get them a job because it would l- allow them to be a little bitty researcher, a, a mini professor, yeah. feel like Socrates in your dorm room hall, <laughs> sitting there discussing the deep problems of the world. And, and there's intellectual fulfillment. You feel important. Yeah. And as a paying customer, that's a, a good that you can get. That's a service, right? You can pay to feel like you are Socrates. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. I thought given that we met uh, at the University of Michigan a bit over a decade ago, it'd be fun to do an episode on uh, on higher education, where it all started. Let's do it. Well, first off, did you think that you were going to be a professor at one point? Or what was your career thinking at that time? Well, honestly, my first thought was that I was going to get a PhD so that I could be a famous econ blogger. <laughs> and that kind of worked. But yeah. um, my advisor, Miles Kimball, prevailed upon me to go try being a professor. I said, okay, I'll give it a try. I gave it a try. I didn't like it at all. I wasn't just wasn't really that interested in in the academic life at all. Yeah. And so um, I thought, what will I do now? And so, uh, you know, I went back to my original dream of blogging. Yeah. And you weren't interested in it because it was too like abstract, theoretical. You wanted to be more practical. No, 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 no. I like, you know, that that part's fine. I it was that it felt like farming. You know, my dad's a professor and and it really feels like tilling your research results in your papers and your grad students from the soil again and again every year, living in one place or maybe two places for the rest of your life, settling down in a nice college town. You know, that's that's not a bad life, you know, and um, especially for boomers. I think that for boomers, the alternatives of being like, you know, a company man or, you know, something like that were really a lot less attractive, especially because when boomers got professor jobs, the university system was expanding rapidly. And now the university system is this place where you just have to fight tooth and nail for tenure, right? And, um, And only a few people get it. You know, at the same time, the economy, the knowledge economy has expanded in so many ways. There's so many other interesting things you can go and do. Yeah. Uh, you can start a company, you can work in VC. I'm just naming things you've done. Yep. You know, you can go be a blogger. There's a million things you can do. You can, you know, working for Google 
you know, everybody disses it, right. but it's, it's actually pretty cool compared yeah. to the corporate jobs of the past. And, and there's just so many things you can do. Have your own small software business, you know, or consult or yeah. anything. Um, and that being an academic is no longer as awesome as it was. Now you still get to hang out at a university town, which yeah. is great. The setting is still great. Yeah. Yeah. I loved being in Ann Arbor. I love it. Yeah. But you can't change. You know, if you, if I want to say, oh, well, I feel like going and moving to Japan as an academic, you have to take like a big career hit to do that. You can do it, but you have to take right. a big career hit and you're very dependent on institution. You don't get paid very much. And, you know, now as a, as an independent blogger, I can just pack up and move to Japan anytime I want. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. You know, Substack has made it so that either journalists or academics can now be independent writers and maybe, you know, the case of you and some other successful people make more than they would have otherwise, we still don't quite have the same thing for people who want to teach. I guess there are some people on YouTube who are, who are famous, or, but like it's, it's not, we haven't reached the same level of kind of professionalization of kind of the indie teacher. For a tenure track or tenured professor, teaching is not your primary job. Right. Teaching is the, the grunt work that you have to do, uh, you know, in order to get to the part of your job that you really want to do, which is research. Research is what gets you prestige. Very few tenure track profs or tenured profs feel like their worth as a worker comes from teaching. Now, some do, but that doesn't mean they don't enjoy it. And it doesn't mean there's no value in it. It doesn't mean they don't find value in it, but they don't feel like that's the main thing. Research is the thing that they, they didn't want to be a lecturer. Yep. Right. They wanted to be a researcher. That's what they're there for. Can you be a researcher and travel around? That's actually a little bit easier in many fields, depending on who you can get to support you. Do you think this marriage of research university plus, you know, place where undergraduates gain skills and knowledge has worked? It, it feels like we've tried to jam pack so much in this in this university. <laughs> you know, it's a place where you get a job. It's a place where you become educated. It's coming of age. Um, it's a place where you know enlightened. You know. Um, and, and it's really just a grab bag. And maybe it seems like it's doing all of those things not super well. Um, wh wh what do you think about that? What should right. be the purpose? So our university system is basically the mashup of two systems, which was the British college system and the German university system. And the British college system is our undergrad system. Basically, it's where we send people to hang out with other people of their peer group and learn, you know, uh, to be a well-rounded person from some eminent scholars. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like a, a bit of a finishing school preparing you to be a model citizen member of the upper class, except we've expanded it to the middle class, but not to the working class. You know, there still is a lot of classism involved in who gets a college degree and who doesn't in America. On the other hand, our grad school system is the German system, which is basically apprenticeship. Germans love their apprenticeships. Yeah. And so it's a, it's an academic research apprenticeship. You know, when you're a grad student, you study under a professor, you learn how to be a professor, and then you go be a professor or, or a researcher at a company or something like that. You go do research as a job. And so that's, that's our grad school system or our PhD school system and, and our master's student system as well. MBAs and MDs and all that stuff, that, that's a third thing. That's certification. But, that's, but basically, we have this mashup of the German and British systems. The question is, does it work? And I think there are some important places where it doesn't work. One of those is that we hire tenure track professors based on how good th their research is, but we don't hire them based on how much research they will do in the future necessarily. We hire people based on how much research they've done in the past. So if you're an old, you know, like uh, eminent professor like Joe Stiglitz, who's never going to do any more 
quality research his whole life. Sorry, Joe. But, you know, he's real old. He, he did a lot. He will get hired by some university for millions a year just so they can put his name on stuff, right? And that comes from the interaction between the research and the teaching systems because right. the reason they want this guy who did a bunch of research in the past to put his name on this is to attract people to be prestigious. Yep. You want to go where Joe Stiglitz is going to be giving the talk at the seminar and to be prestigious to undergrads too. You know, undergrads, you know, top undergrads who will give you a lot of alumni money or whatever, they'll look at who has the most Nobel Prize winners at the school and decide where to go. And those are the people who are going places who are going to give you a bunch of alumni money. And so, you know, there's this prestige game being played with universities. It doesn't necessarily encourage them to, to encourage people to do the best research necessarily. So for example, Hal Varian, Google runs on economics. It runs on auction theory, yeah. right? That's how they make all their money. Yeah. And that was implemented by an economist named Hal Varian. Hal Varian worked at University of Michigan hmm. and did a lot of his best research at the University of Michigan before being hired away by elsewhere. And so the question is, did the University of Michigan benefit from this? And so um, to a little bit, but if you look at what institutions he's associated with, I think he went to Berkeley, but it was, it was more prestigious than the University of Michigan at the time. Berkeley, of course, still is. And so University of Michigan supported this guy to do this amazing groundbreaking research, and then he just leaves because he can. That's not necessarily optimal to hire people who've done research in the past. We want people being supported who will do research in the future. Yeah. I think that's more conducive to scientific progress. So that's a problem. There's also the problem that all the money for this comes from the, the teaching side, the undergrad side. Well, not all. Okay. I'm sorry. Not all the money. There's government grants, right? Grants come from the research side. You know, tuition comes from the undergrad side and alumni donations come from the undergrad side and state support comes from the undergrad side. So m most of the funding comes from the undergrad side for universities. And that funding is used to cross-subsidize the research side. So the money that undergrads pay is used to pay the salaries of professors who do research and it's used to pay for facilities and things like that. Yeah. I've always wondered if universities should be investing in startups that come out of their universities from students in more direct ways. But then I, I learned or realized that they do it indirectly because a lot of universities' endowments invest in venture capital funds who then invest in the startups. They're the best startups that, that emerge. So they both do have some upside while also having some plausible deniability of, you know, we treat everyone equally, we're not favoring people, this, this kind of thing. Right. Oh, no, they're very invested. That's not the only way. What you described, endowments investing in VC that invests in student entrepreneurship, whatever, that's not nearly the only way. There's also the thing that uh, we invented with the Bayh-Dole Act, which is commercialization of research. A lot of startups, successful startups that come out of universities are, are technical. Yeah. Right. They're research based. They're in they're in chemistry and material science and blah, 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 and or computer science. And um, universities will take some of the value of the patents of the intellectual property developed at the university. So in that sense, they have a stake as well. Yep. And finally, uh, people who go off and make a crap ton of money, you know, as entrepreneurs are going to give money to the people who, to, to the place, to their alma mater, right? Hewlett Packard still gives ridiculous amounts of money to Stanford because that's where Hewlett and Packard went to school. So it established a relationship between the company and the school, even after the original people were long dead. And, um, and so those are the many ways in which universities really capture a lot of that value. Yeah. Let's, um, let's segue to a post you wrote called Americans are falling out of love with the idea of college. Uh, you say we expected too much of our one functional institution. 
Why don't you unpack some of the main pieces you were trying to say there? Right. So, so this is all about the teaching side. So in fact, I think the research side of the university works very well. And my main problem with the research side is that it's tethered to the teaching side so that if you have fewer people wanting to go to college or whatever, it starves research of money. So we need to find alternative sources for funding for this important critical research that we do. But for the undergrad education side, which is more of the British piece of college, I think of it as, that's good too. You know, we broadly college educated white collar workforce is very important. You cannot have an industrial advanced economy without that. And we were really the first to get it. You know, we don't have the highest percentage of college educated people, but we did for a long time and we did it first. So in the 20th century, we had all the people graduating from college. And so America was where all the best engineers were and the best researchers and the best stuff, but also just, you know, the most well-educated. Who's higher than us today? Who's higher than us today? A lot of countries. And, and one reason is because it costs more here. But one reason, I think the main reason here is that America's K-12 education system is poor. It's not poor. It's decidedly mediocre, and it doesn't prepare enough people for college. So you get a lot of people who just can't handle the college. Also, it's an extremely rich country where maybe some people just want to sit around and play video games and sell drugs instead of going to college. So there's many reasons there, but, but we're still pretty good in terms of how many people we graduate from college. I think that we expected undergraduate education as an institution to do a lot of things for our country. So in addition to providing this broadly educated workforce, which is what it was designed to do, we expected it to provide intellectual fulfillment. And so everyone would go to college and the the message was major in whatever you want, you know, you'll get a job, don't worry, because you've got that sheepskin, you've got that college degree. You know, so people would major in the humanities, economics or other useless crap, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Economics <laughs> is is great at at teaching you how to sound smart to other middle managers in corporate America. Um, it's useful. <laughs> it's very useful. So, no. So so people would major in in stuff that wouldn't get them a job because it would l- allow them to be a little bitty researcher, a, a mini professor. Yep. You know, feel like feel like Socrates in your dorm room hall, <laughs> sitting there discussing the deep problems of the world. And, and there's intellectual fulfillment. You feel important. Yeah. And as a paying customer, you want that's a that's a, a good that you can get. That's a service, right? You can pay to feel like you are Socrates. No. Socrates of the dorm room hall. <laughs> and you know, that was I loved that. That was great. Everybody did it. You know, everybody got this intellectual fulfillment. Some people, you know, I, I got a lot of that from from physics classes, STEM stuff. A lot of people got it from the humanities. And of course, they're all very precious and pretentious and puffed up and little kids. But they're having fun, and fun is what life is all about. I'm utilitarian, <laughs> right? So, so, so we we expected colleges to be able to deliver both that and a job, yeah. and you can't because if you sit around, you know, like just pouring over philosophical questions that like other people have already picked over a million times, and that's intellectually fun, but it's not something that people will hire you for necessarily. When you look at the lifetime earnings of say, you know, English majors versus, versus, uh, you know, computer science majors, it's a big deal. It's like a million dollars of difference in terms of how much the average person earns over their life, like a million dollars over the lifetime. That's not trivial. That's a lot. And so I could just keep quoting statistics, but basically what happened was that people realized that this, this, is what was going on. And after the Great Recession, there was this massive collapse in humanities majors and this massive rise in, well, CS and engineering, because those are very practical majors, but also other practical majors that I'd almost describe as blue collar majors, like health and physical, you know, physical education to be a physical therapist and other things where basically college is a certification that like 
you're going to do a blue collar job, but you're also kind of smart, but it's useful for getting a job. And so people started majoring in all these practical majors and the humanities people just scream and scream because, you know, they, there's this, well, because they lose money, but right. Because if there's fewer tuition dollars flowing to their departments then blah, blah, blah. But you know, this is inevitable because we, you, you, you can't prepare people for the job market at the same time as you give them intellectual fulfillment and a four year sort of like scholarly intellectual vacation. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Well, what, what changed there? Is it that just more and more people are going to college, and the, or the economy got more competitive, or the economy changed? Like, What changed such that you could no longer do both of those things right if we were once well, doing them a bunch of things changed so i'll just say three things changed because i'll just make up the number three and then if there's four <laughs> then we'll deal with that um the first thing that changed was <laughs> the first thing that changed was that we sent a l- whole lot more people to college and on the margin that meant there were a lot of people who didn't get as good a job benefit out of it uh-huh. whereas a lot of the people were still getting you know great jobs from going to college blah blah, blah. you had all these people on the margin because when you keep you know, economics says when you keep sending more and more people, you get more down to the marginal student for whom the benefits and costs are pretty equivalent sort of wash, right? And so that's that's the first reason is just this boom. The second thing is that when you increase demand like that, when everybody decides that you need a college degree to get a good job in the world, and so we better cough up the money no matter what it takes. And then the, the federal government says, okay, we'll support that. We'll give you a bunch of student cheap student loans, you know, and encourage you to take out all the student debt. And so everybody's paying all this money, including money that the government is lending them and shoveling it at these colleges. What are they going to do? They raise the price, supply and demand, right? Demand yeah. goes up, quantity goes up, more people go to college, but also price goes up. So that happened. And then all these people were, were graduating with this massive student debt right? Student debt went way up. Now it's not the $150,000 of debt that you hear about. Those people all went to like med school or law school. It's the, it's the 20 to $40,000 in debt people who went to undergrad and thought, you know, I majored in English at the university of Michigan. I can get any job I want. And now they're like, Oh, I'm two years out of college and I can't get any job I want. Um, because who is that interested in English major from Michigan anymore? And now I have $40,000 in debt and I have to make payments on that now. And that, that sucked. (laughs) And so that, I think, war- warned people away. And the third thing that happened was just the economy. I think the 90s were this incredible boom. The 2000s, you had this wealth boom of, of people feeling richer from houses. And still, there was a lot of optimism just left over from the 90s. And then the Great Recession hit. 2008, 2009, just devastation, devastated middle-class wealth in the housing market, devastated the job market, devastated uh, funding for colleges from states. And so suddenly, the tide went out. And everybody's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Shit got real. I can't just rely on America to deliver me this upper middle class lifestyle just because I have any old sheepskin from the University of Michigan. I am going to have to 
work and <laughs> do something pragmatic. But fortunately, the social media came along and I can get my dorm room discussion on Twitter now. So I can still be, <laughs> instead of being the Socrates of the dorm room, I can be the Socrates of Twitter. <laughs> um, so that that happened. And that and, and maybe there was a substitution there. You know, I, I don't know. Anyway, it turned out there were three after all. <laughs> Maybe just zooming out on the jobs thing for a second, people often say things like you could, you know, you didn't have to go to college and you'd have a guaranteed job. It was just easier to to get a good job. Is is the reason why or the reasons why that changed? One, I guess we automated a lot of or, or either shipped away or automated a lot of jobs such that jobs require just more education, more specialization. Why is it just harder for the average American to get jobs nowadays than it used to be? Well, so you mean non-college without going to college? Yeah. So the answer is that it's not. Oh, interesting. Like that's a that's an illusion. You can still go and work in construction your whole life and live a 1950s style lifestyle or better than a 1950s style lifestyle now. And you see a lot of blue collar people who do it. You don't hang out with them, <laughs> but they do. Um, they are there. We could go out to a construction site and meet those people and find out what they do. And they live in better houses than the 50s and eat better food and drive bigger cars. So, so the people who are concerned about jobs being shipped away, are, are they misguided, I guess, in, in that like, is it easier for them than it used well, to be? Well, they're not. So they're not. They're not wrong, but but it's a very specific thing that those people are talking about. Those when people talk about jobs being shipped away, they're talking about manufacturing specifically. Yes, and those jobs were shipped away to right. one place, which is China. The manufacturing competitive threat from Japan, Germany, all those places essentially fizzled. There was no, never any real threat. We saw the same number of people working in manufacturing. American manufacturing remained competitive with Japan and Germany and other high-cost places. We freaked out a lot, and it turned out not to be worth freaking out. But when China came along, the whole situation changed, and our jobs actually did get shipped away in the 2000s. I say our, but you know, we weren't working manufacturing, but American good manufacturing jobs did get shipped away. And as far as we know, a lot of the people who had their jobs shipped away, never recovered. You know, they took other jobs for half the pay, you know, or sometimes went on welfare, or just retired. But then a lot of people seem to have this permanent hit. You know, are you, are, are you actually from Michigan originally, remind me? No, I'm from New Jersey. Oh, you're from Jersey. Okay. Yep. Everyone I know is from Jersey. It's like this place <laughs> where everybody's from. Yeah. But yeah, so, but, but you lived in Michigan. I lived in Michigan. Yeah. We saw the Rust Belt. Yeah. That Rust Belt is about more than just China. There were a lot of other factors contributing, but that is true that in the 2000s especially, I guess we had a second Rust Belt almost. The first was in the 80s. That was more due to just macroeconomic conditions and you know various other stuff. But then the Rust Belt, the, this, I guess the second Rust Belt of the 2000s was partly due to China. I, I wouldn't put, point the finger at automation here. Automation is, is pretty slow and compensated for by increases in demands for products. As we had kept automating, we still had about the same number of people working in manufacturing in America, even though the percent of the employed workforce went down. So you still had the same number of human beings in factories in 2000, about the same number that you had in 1950 or 1965, hmm. right? You had about the same number of people, but the percentage went down because our population had grown and the new people went into services, knowledge industries, all this other stuff, right? And the knowledge industries paid better. Coders make more than, than metal bashers typically. And so we added better paying jobs, but the number of people in the factories stayed about the same because demand increases balanced out the automation that was happening. Then after 2001, complete collapse in the number of people working in factories in America. Like factory workforces just get decimated. And what happened there? Well, that was China. There's no um, automation technology we suddenly invented in 2001. Right. Right. It's like not 
Um, what did we invent? Like Google, we just automated. We had a hard time retraining those people for things like construction or other blue collar, you know, booming. Uh, no, it was, it was actually very easy to do that. They just don't make as much money. Oh, got it. There, the um, the high value added manufacturing that we did was very high value added. The new knowledge work jobs, those people couldn't go back and get their PhD in biology or something. There just weren't weren't jobs in the same categories of stuff they knew how to do or could e- or could be trained to do mostly. Some did, a few did. Yeah. You know, but most most didn't. And um how much do you think populism was driven by economic versus sort of social cult- or cultural populism you mean Trump? Yeah. Well, it's hard to say. I saw a bunch of studies on this and as far as I can tell, it was at most a minor factor. I mean, you did see you did see Trump appeal more to the people in the Rust Belt states than he did to traditional conservatives in the South. And you saw that he appealed more to people without college educations than to people with college educations. And one reason his appeal in the South was limited is because the South actually has a pretty high rate of people with college degrees compared to the Midwest. And the Midwest is this place where people don't have as many college degrees because traditionally the economy is based on good manufacturing jobs that you didn't need a degree to get. And so in that sense, I think that there was an effect. The simple story of people were mad because we shipped all the jobs to China, so they voted for Trump. I think that that simple story was only a, that was a thing that was happening, but that was only a small thing. Yeah. But the more, the idea of people in the Midwest not going to college and therefore not, I don't know, being less liberal or whatever because it had a non-college-based economy, that was a real thing. That, that was, you know, I would guess from the estimates I saw in political science papers that that was bigger than just the anger over jobs being shipped to China. But I, you know, that meme was there, like people who never were impacted by that shipping of jobs to China still felt this lack of nationalism. I think they felt the country didn't have their interests in mind. And I think that that probably did play into Trump to some degree. Trump is the the classic political huckster who just rabble rouses and comes along and says like, I'll fight for you. And you know, he's full of shit. I think yeah. even his people in the Republican party knew he was full of shit about this. It's not real. At the same time, I think people can, you know, voting is mostly expressive because one vote almost never swings any election. So yeah. voting is just self-expression. So I think people did to some degree want to express their desire for a government that would stand up and fight for them instead of simply standing there as a referee and saying, fight amongst yourselves and the winner will be granted tax breaks. And like, n- what? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but I guess outside of manufacturing, which is a small percentage of the working class, do you think working class grievance has been justified or has that been kind of oversold relative to working class economic prospects, you know, a few decades ago? I think working class economic prospects are still pretty good, but there are downsides as well, major downsides. One is that, but I don't think those downsides are necessarily what drove people to Trump. So the biggest downside is the healthcare system sucks. Yeah. We pay, you know, more than double what Europeans pay or or Asians pay or whoever pays for the same services, same quality services that they get, unless you're at the very high end of like experimental cancer treatments or something. We get just about as good healthcare as they get, and we pay like through the nose for it. And we have these giant surprise hospital bills and huge co-pays and navigating the insurance system and blah, blah, blah. Get a referral from your PCP. Oh my God, just give me the healthcare. Yeah, Why not? Please give me the healthcare. And so I think that that healthcare system did honestly drive a lot of anger. It drove people to the Democrats, you know, because Obamacare, Obamacare, honestly, it probably tried to fix the, the less important problem 
which was people who are uninsured. The more important problem is cost, and it didn't do it did a little bit, but very little to uh, to address the cost problem. So Obamacare, it it threw money at the healthcare issue and mollified some people, but I think that it didn't uh, really affect or address this problem of cost. And what what would have solved that or or made it? What's the highest leverage thing we could do to to address that? A uh, public option. Right now, if you look at the Medicare system and private insurance, Medicare will end up paying much less for the exact same service, health service, that a private insurer will pay. There's a very obvious reason for this. It's called monopsony power. It's that uh, when you have Medicare, it's this big, important buyer, and you don't, you don't, you know, try to haggle with Medicare. Medicare will kick your ass. Medicare is just like, I am the giant big customer in the room right. and you can give me what price I think is fair or you can go away and not have this giant customer. And they're like, yes, sir. And so, but then you get, you know, I'm Blue Shield PPO, blah, blah. How would you like to pay, give us a cheaper <laughs> price? No, pay the full price, Blue Shield PPO. You know, that's, that's monopsony power. That's, that's bargaining power. And, and Medicare has it, but it's only for old people. And so everybody else is paying the Blue Shield PPO price. And so what you need is, one might even call it Medicare for all. It would look a lot like the Japanese and Korean systems. So what you get in the Japanese and Korean systems is that, is that the government will pay 70% of everything, but only 70%. For the rest, you have private insurance, you have employer-based insurance, you buy your own insurance, you, you just pay out of pocket, whatever, for 30%. Unless you're like really poor or like really old. They'll take care of you. But for most people, for most things, you pay 30%, government pays 70%. And this means the government doesn't pay for all of your healthcare. It's not Bernie Sanders land, right? This isn't like the magical forest of like free infinite healthcare. It only pays 70%. But what that means is that every single health service that gets provided, the price is negotiated by the government insurer. Every single service, the government has its, its, its finger in that pie. When you break your leg and you go to the whatever, the government will be involved in that. And, and it just it can basically negotiate down prices. So in Japan, you can't and in Korea, you can't gouge people for health services because the government is like a, a, a partner that sort of rides along with every transaction. And that is exactly what we need to do in America. And the reason we don't have it is because there are certain interests that would be decimated because of it. Like, is, they're just lobbying against it, basically? That is part of it. One is that all the progressives who would be interested in pushing for something like this are instead pushing for free infinite healthcare fountain, which we'll get by raising taxes on all the billionaires only. <laughs> Certainly not on my millionaire family and parents with their, you know, $5 million house in Marin County. Definitely don't raise taxes on those people. No, just raise taxes on Musk and Gates and yeah. Bezos and those guys. We, you know, and we'll get enough money to pay for free infant health care for anybody. Those people are silly. But the point is that all the people who are still dissatisfied with Obamacare and still want something better are pressing for something that isn't actually better. They're pressing for something silly and extreme. People come along and propose the plan that I described to you all the time. Everyone just ignores it. There's lots of interest against it, obviously. You know, there's the people who would have to charge cheaper prices. They couldn't charge the same yeah. fat profits for providing MRIs or whatever, right? And then there's the people who, um, then there's the you know private insurers themselves. If you're competing to insure 30% of the market instead of 70% of the market, that sh that will shrink the insurance industry. It won't kill it. You'll still have Kaiser, Blue Shield, whatever, but it's going to shrink it. And so then those interests are opposed to it. And then all the people who would naturally fight for it are instead fighting for something else. 
Yeah. We'll do a deeper dive on uh, healthcare in a, in a future episode, but to close the yeah. loop on the, on the populist. Um, so in a recent podcast with Lex Friedman, I heard George Hotz say, Hey, instead of UBI, which we should really be focused on is just making healthcare and housing cheaper for people, because those are, you know, two of the biggest costs that uh, working class are facing. Is, is, yeah. is that is that true? And what do you think about that? Healthcare, housing, transportation, energy, cheap, childcare, childcare is a big one. Yeah. He's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Go George Hotz, whoever that is. I don't know you, but I like you because yeah. I agree with you. That is a good idea because that that's the abundance agenda, right? When you talk to people like Derek Thompson, Ezra Klein, that's what they're that's what they're pushing. But then, you know, people on the on the conservative side are starting to see the wisdom of that too. You see like American Enterprise Institute always post their most important chart in the world, which shows all the big service prices increasing like crazy, whereas, you know, like price of a TV or food or something went down. We get cheap stuff and expensive services. And um and so they're they're thinking about this too. Take all the big stuff in the world and make it abundant. That's a great idea. What does that look like? For is is it as simple as saying stop restricting supply and subsidizing demand, or like what, say more about how to do that in actuality? That, so that's a good question because there are some situations in which one or both of those things we need to do. For example, with college, you know, college is super expensive. One thing we need to do is stop giving out so many student loans because it's just flowing directly into the, you know, coffers of these people of colleges that are just spending it on a bunch of administrative staff, facilities, you know, fancy dorms or what things they don't need. Anyway, the point is stop handing out cheap student loans to everybody and pushing it on these gullible 18 year olds. Stop in terms of restricting supply. Well, the government should expand supply of colleges. So like Cal State, SUNY and CUNY and other, uh, you know, sort of lower level state schools. We call them lower level, but what they really do is they educate the working class. They take the kids of laborers, people who have never gone to college, and they turn them into like college people. They're a massive engine of upward mobility for the working class. All the data shows this. The Ivy League is just an elite game. Forget about the Ivy League. Even more than like University of Michigan or like a flagship state school, a lower ranked state school, it, it, you know, it's not about Michigan, it's about Michigan State. Go Spartans. I don't know. Um, they're the Spartans, right? Yeah, yeah. Spartans. Okay. Like take, take you know, Wayne State. Boost that. Yep. Expand spots. Increase funding for that to educate more human beings. Put more butts in chairs. That will uplift the working class and build us a better workforce that we can then use to rebuild our manufacturing industries because we'll have a very broadly educated working class, you know, that can think carefully and fix a fancy machine or whatever that we need to do. Yeah. That's what we need to do. We need to be expanding those schools. In terms of childcare, I don't know what to do. In terms of healthcare, we already went over that. In terms of housing, we it is really all about the supply restriction. With housing, the demand subsidy is not the big deal. With college, it is. With housing, it's not. With housing, supply restriction is the big deal. We can't, we aren't allowed to build any houses in this country. You know, apartment buildings. And we I say houses, I mean like duplexes. I mean small apartment buildings even not even just not even monster apartment buildings but just small ones everywhere what are those places called that are sort of like a little like cottage village kind of thing it's like apartments but it's it's like people it's like yuppie starter you know pack out in the suburbs of <laughs> oakland or something but build more of that thing so build all of those all of the above all of the missing middle housing yes build the giant apartment complexes yeah. the soaring apartment towers of blah 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 the giant fish tanks but also build all the missing middle housing in the country 
the inner ring suburbs need to be densified. If you drive five minutes out of a city, you're into just single family houses. Even within a yeah. city is single family houses. You go to, you know, lots of Chicago, lots of San Francisco is just single family houses. No, put a duplex, put a row house, put a small apartment building, do what they do in, you know, France and Japan, which is have like, just have a six story apartment building everywhere. That's how you build your dense housing and then put in some, you know, put in more trains and buses so that people can get places without having to own a car. Lots of people still will, but then you don't have to. We'll keep the streets all the same. Keep your leafy streets and your trees. It's fine. Just build more stuff. And uh, that's yeah. what we need to do. Right now, I believe higher ed is like 3% or something like that of GDP. Educa- healthcare is like 20% or, or something like that. Do you expect those numbers to go up or uh, uh, what do you predict there? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, like healthcare might, there's upward pressure because of aging, but I I really do think we need to push it down as a percent of GDP by reducing cost. And when you look at cost, cost is almost entirely an issue of price. We're buying the same things as other people and we're just paying more for the same things. And so we're cursing back to to higher ed. You you were in the piece, you know, we have, our expectations are too high. We're trying to fit too many things. You mentioned job, intellectual fulfillment. So should we pick one or, or so should we consolidate or, or segregate a little bit uh, or what expectations should we have? Well, I think that, that people have the right idea, which is they're thinking, okay, college is for a job. If I want to bullshit about philosophy and stuff, there's always Reddit. <laughs> Reddit is the dorm yeah. room that, you know, you always wanted. <laughs> yes, and exactly. if you want to, you know, college parties are great. You get to meet a lot of people and maybe hook up with them or not. Uh, but you, you know, you can do that. Now the internet is allowing events to be organized. that are just as cool as college parties for young people. Colleges were this means of sorting in physical space, but now the internet allows us to sort. So even apart from doing things like, you know, hinge or whatever, bumble dating, like actual dating, you can also just organize parties and stuff like that with the internet using the internet, um, in ways that you, before you couldn't, the college was the, the platform. And so we're, we're disaggregating college almost. And so people's movement of thinking about college as a way to get a job, that is correct. That's what it's about because the other functions of college are pretty easy to disaggregate at this point with the internet. Yeah. And there, there are people that get upset about that. Of course, the humanities people who say, Hey, but something is lost you know, you can do it on Reddit, but they're less likely to do it on Reddit. And also it's really not the same thing if you're, you know, not reading Chaucer, Emily Dickinson or whoever. (laughs) That, that, so that's the idea. The British model of college was that the children of the upper class would all go to a few select schools that all live together. So they'd all know each other and they'd all acculturate to each other. And then these sort of like wise old guys would teach them the ways of, of British upper class culture and that they'd, you know, it was like a finishing school where they'd then become good little members of the upper class. America said, hey, what if we did that for the middle class? Yeah. And cool, good, but it's, it's just too expensive. Like if that's all college is, all you're doing is you're learning how to like be part of the middle class. It's not nothing. There are benefits there. You learn not to smoke. Yeah. You learn not to overeat you know, obesity and smoking are much lower among college grads. Just a lot of healthy behaviors. You learn healthy behaviors. You also learn some stupid stuff like stupid, dumb politics. Um, But then you learn all these things. And a lot of these things you learn from your peers. These aren't professors teaching you this. It's not your professor telling you to like eat right. It's your peers. So I'm saying that the British model of college applied to the entire middle class to become a cultural finishing school for the middle class. That's not valueless. That's not worthless. It's not something worth 
laughing at and throwing away and saying, well, that's stupid. Get rid of that. Like as many conservatives would like to do. It does have value, but it just does not have $40,000 a year of value. Yeah. Not, not everyone can be an elite or you can't have a whole country of. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But the point is that like going, going to college just for finishing school, just to learn how to like not be fat and not smoke is not worth $40,000 a year. It's not worth zero, but it's not worth $40,000 a year. Right. You know, the, the humanities profs whose job was ostensibly to shepherd the, the kids of the middle class, the middle class kids into middle classness, those people in cultural middle classness, yeah. they are going to be upset. It's questionable how important they ever were to the process anyway, because it was primarily like dorms and peer groups and whatever that did it. But the, the humanities professors are going to be upset and they'll come up with all this dark rhetoric about how, you know, we're just we're not teaching people to be responsible, democratic citizens and they're going to fall for Trump and blah, blah, if we don't teach them the humanities. And, and no, they won't like. <laughs> sure, there's educational polarization, but like, you know engineers will also <laughs> vote for the Democrats. It's like, you know, that's just, it's not Moby Dick. That's getting people to you know, vote Democrat. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. We don't, the, the humanities were oversubscribed and, um, the history major was oversubscribed and sociology was oversubscribed and I'm sorry, economics, you were oversubscribed <laughs> as well. I've I've been surprised on the professional, like if it's about getting a job, why isn't there like Walmart university or take whoever the biggest, you know, employers in our country are and just create much more direct pipelines between universities and, and these employers and universities. You mean have the, have the, the, uh, company actually pay for education? No, I, I mean more just ensure that the skills that the university are teaching align with what Walmart or whoever the biggest employers needs. And maybe you could even have just much more detailed partnerships where you can, if you, if you can guarantee a pipeline. I was talking to a friend of a friend who's running a Lambda school for Orthodox Jews. Um, he helps oh, Orthodox no. Jews. Uh, it's basically, a, it's full, vertically integrated. It's Accenture for Orthodox Jews. There's like 30,000 Orthodox Jews who learn how to code and then they get a job in consulting. Um, and it was a little bit of a, a funny example, but they guarantee employment, which is which is the hard part. That's what the other Lambda school, which you know I'm friends with Austin, but they, they, they don't do that or they don't do it yet. That's hard to do. Right. I cannot speak to Lambda School for Orthodox Jews. <laughs> that sounds silly, but maybe it'll work. Um, the, the idea of teaching directly to corporate needs is very difficult. First of all, because a lot of college skills are nonspecific. You learn how to read stuff and figure out what it means, right? You learn how to write stuff so that someone else can figure out how, what it means. You know, we're just reading passages and writing essays is like a huge part of business communication. You learn how to interact with your peer group. You learn how to, and then you learn technical stuff too. But usually the technical stuff is like, you end up learning most of the technical stuff on the job. And increasingly, uh, you know, the only real math classes that you'll have to, to take to get like a coding job are probably just some, you know, you'll, you'll have to take linear algebra. We should do discrete math, by the way. Like what you don't actually learn in undergrad unless you're like in an engineering major program or something like that is how to actually implement all these, like, like how to do a nonlinear function solver, like how to, you know, how to approximate a function on a grid. I really learned that in grad school. Like I was learning some some impressive theoretical math in undergrad. It was actually harder than anything I did in grad school because huh. I was a physics major who switched to econ. I was taking differential geometry and all that stuff. That's harder than than whatever I was doing in econ. But in econ, I walk in and the first thing they're like is, okay, this function is simply a hundred by a hundred matrix because we've approximated with a bunch of values. 
I was like, whoa, cool. Like that kind of stuff needs to be taught more, but that's a segue. Let's not uh, get too distracted. You're going to see the proliferation of, of code Academy. Yeah. You're going to see the proliferation of, of Lambda schools and things like that. I think there's an opportunity for a company to go to these employers who have big hiring needs and say, Hey, we're going to create like custom staffing or training programs for you, um, where we'll train people to learn with, with, with the skills that you need to hire for Like, uh, I don't know, Tesla probably has a big shortage of, yeah, or like these companies where we just don't train enough people. And so right. I think and it's you, an, You've uh, seen that with vocational schools? Yeah. You've seen like, uh, you know, some town will have like an aircraft manufacturer that manufactures like little light Cessna aircraft or something, right? And then they'll have some school, local school for the kids of the working class that's partly funded by government that teaches them how to do all the things they'll need in this factory and then they go work in the factory. You see this, it's extremely effective for like working class people in small towns. You might see the same thing elsewhere. One problem is if companies pay for it, they're also like paying for this is very difficult because if I'm Google and I pay for this program and then the people who graduate go and work at Amazon instead, I just paid for someone else's worker. So the, the problem with corporate training has always been that you end up educating someone else's workforce. Yeah, that, that is a risk. Unless you're Japan, in which case you can lock up workers for the entire life, but that comes with insane amounts of downside so and downside being um not as much innovation or you mean just downside for the individual that they have to work in the same place well downside for the individual obviously but downside for the company in that you don't have the flow of ideas between companies so if someone figures out something like how to make something or how to you know do some process or even just like you know good third-party solutions to use for some code i don't know they don't take it to other companies at all They only implement it at their own company and no other company ever learns about it. So companies have terrible productivity in part because none of them are learning each other's solutions. In America, when workers hop back and forth between jobs, they take ideas and knowledge back and forth between the jobs. And that's hugely important. And so Japan just can't do that because the workers are all siloed. Yeah. You're going to see China run into the same thing, by the way. Yeah. Let's close this episode with a prediction, which is um, when you look at higher education in the next five years out, 10 years out, do you think that the elite schools will mostly stay the same and kind of degrade? And then they'll be in the you know massive long tail, a number will go out of business and they'll mostly look like vocational schools. Like, will there be much stronger bifurcation or what, what are your predictions for w- where we net out in higher education? The elite schools will continue to be the elite because what they're really brokering is status. People will get increasingly mad at them and yell at legacy admissions and athletic admissions, blah, blah, blah. Fundamentally, the system won't it can't change because that's how they get money. They get money from alum contributions, so they have to let in the kids of the rich. People will bellyache and bellyache about the elite schools, and there'll be lots of fights, and ultimately it won't change that much, except when the Supreme Court tells it to change. <laughs> and even then, you're not going to see like Harvard suddenly admit a crap ton more Asian people. Like They'll resist that for the bad reasons that they had on their own and, or you know, or whatever. So it, the, the real way, by the way, that, that every school wants as many Asians as possible is if Asian people start being known for giving large alumni gifts, then watch how fast those Asian percentages go up. Bam. <laughs> anyway, any group of people who wants to like dominate the Ivy schools just become known for alumni gifts. Hmm. But it's a collective action problem. You have to have them all do that. So. <laughs> the elite schools will be the elite and the flagship state schools will be the flagship state schools. And I hope we will give more money to the Cal State type schools, the uh, the lower ranked state schools. Yeah, I hope we will expand seats there. Uh, liberal arts colleges are going to effectively vaporize. 
for-profit schools already vaporized. Vocational schools uh, will do okay. Community colleges will shrink. Community college is not as a value proposition as people thought. A lot fewer people are going. That's serving the marginal student. You know, and the marginal student is the one for whom it's not worth it. So I think the, the colleges that you're going to see vaporize and everybody's going to be upset about, it's already happening. It's been happening for a while, are the liberal arts colleges. These colleges, which really were the finishing schools for a, you know, a, a very narrow slice of the East Coast elite vaporize. That's a dying institution. That There's no more of that that will happen. Uh, very little. It's crazy because when Teal came out with the Teal 20 or 20 fellowship in, you know, I think the early 2010s, um, that was very controversial. I think Larry Summers called it the, you know, most misguided piece of philanthropy, user philanthropy uh, ever or something. And yet a decade later, when Brian Kaplan writes his book, The Case Against Education, I think expecting this big controversy, I think people were largely in agreement with it or didn't see it as that that outrageous. Like it, it feels like there was a higher education bubble that has been popped in the last decade. There is, and it's not what Brian Kaplan said. Like we could do a whole other episode about why Brian Kaplan actually misdiagnosed the problems with higher education. But higher education wasn't worth the value that people were putting into it, for sure. In fact, had Brian Kaplan been right, it would have been worth it. Huh. Brian Kaplan pulled a, a theory called signaling theory. Uh, that theory is about the idea that college is worth it for the for private individuals. Like it's worth it to you, but it's not worth it to society. Right. Because you're essentially having to jump through more hoops to prove that you're conscientious or conformist yeah. or smart or whatever the heck you want to say. And it, notice he changes every week what he thinks they're supposed <laughs> to be signaling. But, um, but the point is that then we, we wouldn't see a decrease in the demand for college unless the state just cut back subsidies massively, which I guess we did after the Great Recession. The decrease in the demand for college probably came from, from the fact that the private value wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it in private terms. right? And that's not something that uh, Kaplan's theory would would necessarily predict. Although I guess you can add things onto any theory to to make right. things seem to work. But but the point is that fundamentally, the idea that co- like people would realize college just isn't worth it. You can call that a bubble if you want. Maybe it is. That's not Kaplan's theory. But it's yeah. but the fact that it's true will make people like books with titles like the Case Against Education because <laughs> they realize they they overexpected what they could get from college, and uh, and then were disappointed. And then fewer people went. And that's the basic story, you know, not some fancy signaling story, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's a good, uh, good summary. Let's, uh, let, let's wrap on that. Until next time, Noah. Until next time. Econ 102 is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, In the Arena, The Cognitive Revolution, and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us the review in the App Store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and erictornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening.